that's what it was sold to us as. And then it very quickly turned into somewhat of a scripted comedy. So it turns into this scripted comedy. You're a teenager. You're young. How is that impacting you as a kid? Like, are you being, are you able to like live any sort of normal life or has that all gone out the window given um, the show? I think, you know, it was funny because everyone with the production company would always say, you know, oh, Todd and Chase are like the funny ones. They're going to be the big ones, all these things. And so I felt from such a very young age that like, all right, I'm just in the background. I am too. I was already struggling at the age of 15. That's like some of the most important years of your life. And I was already struggling with whether it was body image or you know, mental health, things of that nature. And then when the show truly took off, I never imagined (laughs) we would be this like household name that we ended up becoming. And so it was really tough because you definitely read the comments of people and they're just comparison. People constantly comparing you to someone else and people saying the most hurtful, hateful things And it's tough to not let it get to you, especially at that age. And I have always, like, my weight's always fluctuated. I was always, and because I was diagnosed with endometriosis, which is like a female thing. And I was put on a really strong medication and I gained 40 pounds in three months. And I will never forget. All of the comments were, oh, my God, looks like she ate herself, ate one too many cheeseburgers, all these different things. And it leads to, obviously, body image issues. I went through a phase of working out twice a day, which like hardcore workouts, very intense. And I ate once a day. I wouldn't go to bed till I did at least six miles on a treadmill. Like I was very unhealthy and it wasn't until... I was at a workout class. We were running outside and I just like I blacked out and it wasn't until then that I was like, okay, this isn't healthy for me. So TV and being in the public eye definitely has a negative impact and it's there's no handbook on how to deal with it. I know that you've been open about your mental health struggles, battling depression, suicide, stuff like that. I know at times I've heard that when parents are incredibly tough on their kids and they're just strictly parents and there's no friends, kids can internalize it and that can lead to some sort of mental health issues. Did you ever feel that with your parents at all or was it more just situational with what was going on behind the scenes with the stuff you mentioned physically and also reality TV? You know, I think it's so easy to look at it and be like, any person would look back and be like, oh, I wish my parents would have done this, this and this differently. Um, so there's obviously some of those things, but I think for me, my parents did a really good job. Both my parents weren't tough. So my mom was like the, you know, she was the softy. She was, she amazing. My dad though, as tough as he was, he also made sure that we knew, Hey, like, I love you no matter what I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. I and because of that, I knew that he was a safe place. So I don't think now his toughness for sure with me, I think it caused me to get to a place to where I could never accept a win because I was always like, all right, what's the next best thing? I could have done better or I could have reached a different goal or, 
you know, I that was just me. Also, coming from a big family, when you have four other siblings, there's only so much attention to go to, to go around. So in my mind was like, all right, if I can be the best, then I get that attention. So there, those things definitely are, it kind of led to that. But also, I think just being in the public eye and not knowing how to deal with it, it led to a lot of mental health things and depression. And even, you know, there, I say there are things that I have never spoken about that I don't know if I ever will. Maybe one day I will. But there are things that led to, you know, me reaching an all-time low that I finally got to a point where it was like, all right, I can't do this anymore. And, you know, that was one time at 16 or one time at 15 and then again at uh, 18, I think it was. And then at 21, 22, I would say 22, I finally started going to therapy. So it wasn't until I was 22 years old that I was like, all right, I need to go to therapy. I can't do this by myself. I know that at one point you had taken like a whole bottle of like pain pills or something like that. Did you ever struggle with addiction or was that just a one-off incident? No, I never. I have never. That's never been a thing for me. I've never struggled with addiction. I think at that time I was I was 15. And so at that point, it, I mean, you really don't know, I think, at 15, like, all right, if you're going to end your life, what that looks like. Um, I think for me, it was just a moment to where I wanted to be heard. And I was so afraid of being honest about the things I was struggling with that I was like, all right, I just I just want to be heard. And I think that was the biggest thing for me because I've never I've never been one. And I think because addiction does run in my family, I've always been very conscientious of that and of, you know, not going down that avenue. I like to think I have a strong mindset of like, all right, I'm not going to do that. And I don't do it. I've had different people on the show from various reality TV shows, and we've talked about the quote-unquote reality of reality TV and how it's actually not not real. And you kind of hinted at that as well um, a couple minutes ago. What do you want people to know about the truth of reality TV? Because I think sometimes people will see that and they'll see the character of who people are. And I have friends who are on some of these shows, and I meet them in person, and they're totally different from how people that I know that maybe don't know them personally portray them. What would you like my audience to know? You know, it's kind of hard because for us that are on reality television, we're the reason people have the viewpoints that they have. So if we don't want people to see us that way, then we need to be strong. We need to have a we need to be a little bit stronger in our convictions and we don't need to just act a certain way for a paycheck. We don't need like we need to put our foot down and say, hey, this is not me. I'm not going to do this. And obviously there's only so much you can control because editing can make you look totally different than how you really are. But at the same time, I think for people at home, I would just tell, I've, I always like to say, like, give people grace. And just because someone, imagine every aspect of your life being publicized for the world to see. Like, there's going to be things that people don't agree with, that people don't like. You're going to say things you wish you wouldn't have said. Like, just think about the most intimate conversations you've had with someone and how many times afterwards you've had to go back and say, hey, I was wrong. I shouldn't have said this or I should have said this differently. People on reality television don't get that time to go back and have a redo. 
what's there is there. One of the other things that I've I've heard from people is that when they're on reality TV, their identity can be completely wrapped up in that. And when they leave reality TV, it can be hard and challenging to kind of reinvent yourself because, again, you're portraying a certain person on a show to get likes, views, attention, et cetera. And then when the show is done or you leave, now, like, the lights go off and it's just you versus you. I know you're very outspoken now with what's going on with your parents, and we'll, we'll get to that. But as far as Savannah, how have you reinvented yourself? Honestly, coming off of the show, I mean, I would say for sure, like, my brother has had more of my brother, Chase. He's had more of that kind of what you're explaining, like, identity type crisis of, okay, well, who I who am I? Um, And I think I felt that at the beginning a little bit, but luckily, like Chase on the show, he was always happy-go-lucky as the best personality, like can make people laugh. He just had abilities that I didn't have. And then coming off of the show for me, I actually felt a weight lifted off my shoulders because I felt like, all right, I can finally be me. They so badly wanted me to be like this dumb, ditzy blonde, just that was the role I needed to play. And so coming off of that has been a bit challenging because it's like I have to prove myself even more. But now I have such a platform, you know, I have I like to say I feel like I've become a staple on News Nation recently because it's like every other week I'm on there. And I'm getting to do more of what I enjoy. Plus, I feel like what I'm doing is making more of a difference in other people's lives other than my own. And for that, I'm I'm grateful for the show because it gave me the following that I have. But now I feel like I have a voice that can finally be heard that I didn't have on the show. It seems now with everything going on with your parents, you've obviously become very passionate, again, about using your platform, using your voice to give people a voice that maybe don't have a voice or maybe can't have theirs be heard as loud as, as yours can, so to speak. Have you always felt like this calling to help people that are underserved or is this something that's just come about with what's going on with your family recently? I have always had that want in my heart to do it just because of experiences that I experienced as a child. And there were certain times to where, and not for my parents, not from my parents doing, because my parents were like the greatest parents on earth. Like I, I never had to wonder where mom and dad were. Like they always showed up. They always loved us well. Like they were amazing, but there were certain things that were out of their control. And I, there was a point in time in my life where it was like, I wish someone was talking about what I was going through. I wish someone, I wish I had someone to be a voice for me. And so I always vowed to myself, you know what, I'm going to take the hardships that I've gone through and I'm going to turn, I'm not going to let them go to waste. I'm not going to let someone get the best of me. So I'm going to take them and turn them and use them to my advantage. And just since mom and dad, like I said, it's been a year since they've been gone. And the amount of people I have come up to me when I go and visit them that say, you know, on one end, you have the other men and women that are serving time there. And they say, like, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for not forgetting about us. And I think that's the biggest thing. of Thank you for not forgetting about us. Because statistics show that when you have a family member incarcerated, they lose contact with their family within the first five years. 
And so for them to say, thank you for not forgetting about us. Thank you for fighting for us. And then on the other hand, having children and spouses and parents come up to me and just say, keep doing what you're doing. We appreciate you. Like it it goes to tell me that as hard as it is to stand for what's right, it also creates such change and it heals so many other people. Getting into this stuff with your parents, I'm trying to figure out how to frame this. I'm curious to how you view it as a whole. Obviously, you're very emotional and passionate about the way they're being treated and and the way that they've been treated throughout the process of what's been going on and how they've been treated inside the prison system. But was there ever like a sense of like anger at them for what they've been, you know, what they've been accused of doing or what they've done, given that, you know, you're now without them? Like, how have you dealt with all that? Yeah. So it's funny. I've gotten that question before and people that was in one interview and the lady was like, but how are you not mad at them? And I was like, I what do you mean? I was like, I was trying to phrase that without. I, mean, I wasn't trying to like attack. I was just no, honestly curious. I trust me. I know because I was once in the shoes of like, well, yeah, I would be so mad at them. But now after being involved in our criminal justice system, or as I like to call it, criminal injustice system, I know what it's like and I know how things can be portrayed. And I have never seen two individuals, speaking of my parents, I've never seen two individuals be so steadfast in their faith and their family and their love for each other than I had the two of them. And of course, yeah, they were convicted on seven counts of bank fraud, tax fraud, wire fraud, all anything the government could stack on them, they they did. And it was crazy because, you know, you look at it and I say, I'm the first one to say, yes, we need like we need law and order. We need people to be held accountable. We it's not just you don't just let people off on whatever they do. But at the same time, we live in what's supposed to be the greatest nation on earth. And we're tr- we don't have a justice system that is just. We don't law and order isn't being brought out in a way that is just. And I've seen it firsthand. And I was tone deaf beforehand. And now I know better because I've seen it firsthand. Stepping out of the weeds a little bit on the specific situation, like with your parents and the legalities of all of it, I want to talk about how it's impacted you because I know your life outside of the advocacy stuff that you're doing now to advocate for your parents. I mean, your life has been turned upside down. You're now a mom. You're raising your siblings. Talk a bit about what life for Savannah has been like the last year, given that your your parents are incarcerated. You know, when I first got the kids, so my siblings, my sister is 11 and my brother is 17. And when I first got them, I was like, what am I going to do? Like, I didn't. First off, I didn't save my money super well. I was a normal like teenager that got on TV, made money, whatever. Um, but so I looked at it from that perspective of like, whoa, okay, like I really have to jump into my adult shoes because I have two kids that I have to feed, provide health care for, schools, clothes, all the different things. And I, at the very beginning, I just had like a full on breakdown. I was like, I don't know how my mom's done it. Like, I do not know how she did it. And it wasn't like I got to prepare for two kids, you know, like I just got thrown into preteen and teenager, the worst ages ever. Like, (laughs) 
I'm like, this something is not right. Um, but then I like to say that God provides just in time. And that's how I look at my life this past year. It's terrible as it's been and how much heartache has come with it. There has been so many good things that have come from it. And I even just look at my career and I look at the success that I've had and different opportunities that have come my way that have, you know, allowed, given me the money to provide for kids and to get my parents home sooner and all these different things. I'm like, all right, it's it's so easy when you're in the midst of it to be like, God, where are you? Like, you've forsaken me. I If you exist, why aren't you doing anything? It's so easy to get in that. But when you step outside of it and you see these little wins, you're like, all right, that was God. That was God showing up for me just when he knew I needed it. And that's kind of like where I'm at. It's as tough as it is. I also have such a level of gratitude for this past year, for all the people who have shown up for me, all the opportunities that have come my way. And to just watch Chloe and Grayson. I mean, two kids that have lost both their parents to see them laugh and cut up and, you know, they're in therapy, they're playing sports, they're doing really, really good. So for that, it's it's easy to sit and feel bad for yourself, but it gets you nowhere, you know? So like pay attention to the little wins, accept them for what they are and keep moving forward has kind of been my mindset, especially the past six months. My audience is kind of split. Like some are Christians, some believe in God, some believe in the universe, some don't believe in anything. Like it's kind of a mixed bag with that. One of the main reasons I would say that people don't believe in God is when stuff like this happens, when you feel like something unjust happens to somebody close to you or in your life and you start to question like your your spiritual relationship and you start to question the existence of this higher power that's supposed to care about you and guide you along this thing called life. Maintaining faith in my experience becomes challenging at times when you're going through adversity and hardship. What's your relationship been like with with God throughout this process? Yeah, I think, you know, when I was 15, I went through that mindset of, God, if you're real, you wouldn't have allowed this, this, and this to have happened. So you know what? Like, I'm done. I'm wiping my hands clean. I grew up like grandfather's Southern Baptist minister, went to a private Christian school my whole life. Like that was my life. But I was like, you know what, God, if you're real, you wouldn't have allowed this to happen. So peace out, basically. And I will never forget coming home from the hospital when I overdosed and my dad printed out a devotional that came to his email that morning. And it was from Joel Osteen, and it was Romans 8.28, which basically says, like, through every hardship and adversity you go through, like, I'll turn around and use it to your advantage, God says. And it was, like, in the snap of a finger that I was like, all right, like, you got me, you know, like, bad things happen. God doesn't say he's not going to allow them to happen, but he will never forsake you. And that's what I always have to remind myself of, of It's okay to question. It's okay to question why things happen. Now, questioning and doubting God are two totally different things because to doubt you means I doubt your existence versus questioning certain things that happen. And for me also, too, there's so many people that give Christianity a bad name, like so many people who are just like, 
you know, Bible thumpers and, hey, look, this is what this says. This is what that says. And the way that I navigate it is, hey, I'm in no place to judge. Guess what? I've gone out here. I've gotten drunk, had sex before marriage. I've done all these things that you're not supposed to do. But that doesn't mean I'm any less lovable. It doesn't mean that God's just going to turn his back on me. It doesn't mean, I mean, you, a lot of people find God in the lowest of low points. And that's because God some way shows up for them, whether it's through a person, whether it's through a scripture, a song, whatever it may be, he's going to show up. And that's just kind of how I have to look at it because I I just know that if it wasn't for God, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. I wouldn't have the strength that I have. I wouldn't have the insight or, you know, there's a Instagram that I love to follow and it's called God Behind Bars. And I think that's the best just depiction of God in the lowest of low places because you see these men and women who have life sentences and you see these pastors going into these prisons and talking to these people and these people saying, hey, like I'm in here for life, but my soul's not here anymore because they end up finding that relationship with Christ. And I think that's just where it, you know, it does. it's not a pretty relationship. It's probably going to be the nastiest relationship you have with anyone in your entire life because there's going to be so much question that comes along with it. And you're not going to get that answer like you would with a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse, whatever it may be. You're not going to get that direct answer. You're going to have to look for it. And so you have to keep your eyes open to the messages that come your way. Yeah, I think one of the hardest things in life is to win that war in your mind sometimes when you're like battling between, you know, questioning the existence or, or, or questioning the the role of the your the spiritual being or your higher power or God or whatever with what's going on in the world and like being able to like win that battle and be able to understand that, you know, a lot of what we go through, everything that we go through has meaning. And then we come out on the other side of it and we look back like kind of like what you said and you're like, you know what, the last year has obviously been miserable for you and your family, but I've seen certain elements that have been blessings. I've seen meaning in in the pain. And And speaking of pain, you mentioned that one of the things that contributed to a lot of your mental health struggles as a kid was the the hate online, what people said to you after gaining weight, body image, stuff like that. I've read some of the comments, you know, on some of your posts with what you've been talking about lately with your family. Obviously, just got through the holidays, very depressing time, I'm sure, for for many for for people like yourself. What do you do to keep it all together? I think I've gotten to a point with public opinion that I look at people's comments and I'm like, you know what, your comment says more about you than it does about me. And I think if we all look at life through that lens of the hate that people spew, that says more about their heart than it will ever say about yours. And especially with the holidays, you know, it was really tough. And it was, I mean, not having my parents here. They did everything. They went all out. Like holidays were our thing. So it was really tough because I had to be mom, dad, sister, provider, all the things during the holiday. And... It was a struggle, but we made the most of it. And I think now with me speaking out about what's happening with my parents, 
I get it's 50 50. You know, there are tons of people who are in support. And then there's also tons of people who are like, oh, they're criminals. Who cares how they're treated? And for me, being conservative, being a Christian, being all the things that I am and that I'm proud to be, I, you know, I look at it from the perspective of like, well, how can you be pro-life? How can you be, you know, a Christian? And because that's my favorite thing. I go to look at these people's profile and it'll be like, lover of Christ, Jesus has my heart, all these Bible verses. But then their comment is the most hateful thing on earth. And so I look at it and I'm like, how can you claim to be all these things, but speak to someone the way that you speak to them? And that's kind of the toughest part of it all. But you you figure out a way to deal with it and cope with it. Like I said, it says someone's negativity says more about them than it does about you. What do you do on a daily or weekly basis to practice self-care? I mean, I would say I'm not the best at it. I'm kind of one of those people. My therapist describes it as like high functioning depression. So I like keep going. I work. I do. I like to say I'm no better than anyone else to have to work. Okay. So I'm like, I do my podcast. I do real estate. I do speaking engagements, social media. I do whatever comes my way. If there's an opportunity for me to make money and it aligns with my core values and beliefs, I'm doing it. Don't care how long I have to work. I will do whatever I have to do to provide. And That's kind of my viewpoint. Now, every few months, it's kind of like I have a day to where I just break and I'm like, the floodgates open and everything that I've not dealt with comes my way. But I also have started back like working out because I know for me that going to the gym is my therapy. So it that's time for me to have just to myself. And I'm starting to realize that like, hey, I can't be the best version of I can't be the best for the kids if I'm not the best version of myself for me. And so even recently, just, you know, going on, spending time with my friends or people who fulfill me and fill my cup and vice versa, like you have to do that. And especially as a single parent, it's tough because you feel this guilt of like, well, I can't leave them. I can't do this. I can't do that. But at the same time, all you're doing is hurting the kids because you're not getting your cup filled. What were people's reactions like to you before all this happened when they would see you in public compared to now? I would say now when people see me in public, the reactions are more intentional and heartfelt and they have more substance than before. Before it was oh my God, it's Savannah, all these things, you know, like, oh, I like what you were wearing here or there or whatever it may be. Now the reaction is keep fighting, like, or what you said really resonated with me because of this, or I have a family member who's incarcerated, or, I mean, what people don't realize is in the U.S. today, we have over 2 million people incarcerated. And you look at it. So think about how many family members you're impacting. And so now it's just, I love the interaction I have with people now because it's just more intentional and it has more depth. Given what you know about people in prison and the people that you've talked to throughout this process, if your parents weren't incarcerated and they didn't commit the crimes, would you still be as passionate about it given what you know? Well, first off, to correct what you said, In my heart and mind, I know they didn't commit the crimes that they were obviously convicted of. But no, I wouldn't have cared. And that's why I say this whole thing, as much as it has sucked, 
it happened because maybe that was God's way of saying like, hey, people, open your eyes to something bigger than yourself. And so as much as it sucked, I'm grateful for it because it's opened my eyes to our system and the corruption and the abuse and all the things that happen. And I tell people there is I will never be able to truly put into words what it was like the first time I visited my dad. I say I walked I was I remember being so nervous just about how you dress and that they're going to send you away or if you did something wrong or all the things that go along with it. And I remember sitting down and I was like, wow, like I've never felt the presence of Jesus more than I did in that visitation room of a prison. And it's kind of like that quote of you say like airport see the most tears, the most laughter, the most heartache, the most all these things. And I'm like, that's describing this visitation room right now. And so for that, I am so grateful because like you said, you spent three months, right, in in jail and you saw even just the lack of rehabilitation. And for me, that's what breaks my heart is because you see so many young men and women in these facilities that go through abuse or that grew up without parents and their parents were drug dealers and they got brought into it. And we don't take time to get to know why people are the way that they are. We automatically want to judge. And I'm guilty of that. I was guilty of that before this whole thing happened with my parents. I was just like, oh, they're bad people. But have you ever taken the time to understand why they made the decisions that they made? And I think that's the biggest thing that I have learned is you just need to get to know people. You may not agree with what they've done, but what they did may make more sense if you got to know them and their story. And, you know, you look at, we like to say, and I tell people my age group all the time, mental health, we have preached about, especially the past two years, I would say, mental health has become, it's been, it's become cool. Like it's become, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to talk about it. We have normalized mental health. And I absolutely love that. But it goes back to you don't just get to normalize it for one class of people. What about our prison system and the mental health that these men and women are suffering from? And you look and you see charts to where at one point, like our mental health facilities were at an all-time high with their with capacity. And then over the years, you've just seen it go straight down, straight decline. But at the same time that that's declining because we're closing all these mental health hospitals, you see our prison system go up. So when you look at a graph like this, you're like, okay, so these people really need help. They need guidance. They need medication. They need therapy. But instead of giving them that, we're just throwing them in prison. And that's been something that I've become so passionate about because sometimes people just need someone to look at them and say, hey, I believe in you. Like, I want to invest in you. I want to, I just want to love you and love you well. Sometimes I've, I've heard stories of these men that are there with my dad and they're like, I never had a father to tell me you loved me. So when you look at it that way, sometimes all people need to be told is like, hey, I love you. And you don't know how it could change their life. I want to get into that because I'm interested, one, 
how have the fellow inmates reacted to your mom and your dad being in prison? And then on the back end of that, if you if you were calling the shots in these, some of these bigger prison systems, what changes would you make? I mean, I know you've talked about the food and stuff and sanitation stuff, but outside of that, like from a mental health perspective, what changes would you make to make sure that when people are like, you know, we've talked about being held accountable for, you know, a crime or being convicted of a crime or whatever, that they're able to actually get better in there instead of coming out and being in a worse position. Yeah. So I think, you know, how people have reacted to my parents being there, I, it's so great because there are men and women who get out that will message me and say, like, you have no idea how much of an impact your parents have made on me or your dad or your mom. And Dad has a lot more people coming in and out than mom does. And one of the guys that got out was just like, he changed my life. Like he sat and listened to me. He talked to me. Like he gives so many people hope. And when I was at visitation, one of the guys was like, he just changes the whole atmosphere of this place. Like he always walks around with a smile on his face. He's making jokes. He's and like that's and it makes me so proud to say like all right that's my dad and because I know the amount of lives that he's changing and so just like when he spoke out about these conditions his life got a whole lot harder because of course these people that work at this prison they start retaliating against him so whether it's right now just his dorm there's all these other dorms but just his dorm has no heat no hot water, and it's 15 degrees. And so, but yet they have air pumping inside. And that's because they want to, that, that's just their way of retaliating. And that's that's the tough part to have to deal with. But I look at it, and it's funny because I became very outspoken about this. And the Bureau of Prisons have responded to all my claims stating that what I'm saying is not true. And my favorite part about the whole thing is I, I tell them, if what I'm saying is not true, show me your, your evidence to back it up. Because I have the environmental reports that I, that I can put out. I have pictures of the food, the expiration dates, the black mold, all these things. So if, what I, if I am a liar, then put out your evidence that counteracts what I'm saying. And that's the tough part because it, it's not a fight. It shouldn't be a fight. That's just somewhere that I have st stood firm on is the fact that like my parents are in these facilities and they're being so mistreated and even just how these correctional officers, you, you have to start at the top, you know, and when you're hiring people who just degrade these men and women who just, you know, they'll, my dad's a prime example. They came in one day and just all these CEOs just threw all kinds of stuff on the ground and goes, clean it up. Well, how is that how is that treating people well, loving people well, helping them become better? Why aren't we giving them therapy? Why aren't we actually teaching classes that rehabilitate? And you look at it when these people reenter back into society, maybe the reason we have the highest recidivism rate of all the NATO countries is because we just throw them back into society. We don't say how can we help you. You also look at the different laws in the state of Tennessee, you cannot even be you cannot even become a hairdresser if you are a convicted felon. So what are what chance are we giving these people 
other than to go back and sell drugs because that's the only way you know how to make money. Like, why aren't we teaching these people a trade in prison, whether it's electrical or plumbing or anything? Like, teach them something and give them a sense of self-worth that you don't have to be, you don't have to be what you did. You do, you're not your mistake. You're not, you can become better. And that's kind of what I've been speaking about and what I hope to speak about in front of Congress within the next year it's just how do we help these people? How do we, how do our tax dollars go to better people instead of just go to waste? Because what we're doing now is they're all, our taxpayer dollars are going to waste. It's not doing anything. And for people that don't care about the men and women in our prison system, I just say, then care about yourself. <laughs> if you look at it from the perspective of caring about yourself and your own self-interest, these men and women are going to enter back into society. They're going to be your next door neighbor. So don't you want them to become better for yourself and for your children? And that's that's kind of my viewpoint on it is just like we have to do something. And especially for nonviolent first-time offenders, for people who are not a danger to society. What can we do? And you're saying, in my parents' situation, the government says, hey, you owe me $17 million. Well, if they owe you $17 million, what, how are you getting that back by imprisoning them for 12 and 7 years? You're not, you know? So when do you start to draw the line and you look at the, just economically, you look at the threat that these people cause. There's so many different things that are not being taken into consideration because it's become such a left and right thing. Instead of it being a left and right thing, it's just a humanity thing. And so I think one of the most common negative comments I've seen on your posts when you talk about this stuff is, well, your parents are in jail. Like they're not at the four seasons. Like, what do you expect? Right. And so it, from what I understand, your main point isn't like, I mean, obviously you're their daughter and you, you want them to be free. But your main thing isn't to like let have them be released tomorrow. Your main concern right now is to have them be treated humanely. Like you accept that they're in jail, they're in prison. But your thing is like if they're going to be in prison, just like every other inmate, they should be treated as as a human being, right? Exactly. That's my biggest viewpoint. It's not saying, hey, let's house these people in a way that's better than what they'd be living at home. Not at all. But you have to look at the statistics of it all. You look at all of our other NATO countries and you look at how their prison systems are ran. They're ran totally different than ours. They don't have a correctional officer inmate relationship to where one is over the other. They're equal and they're teaching these men and women different trades. They're giving them mental health treatment there. And because of that, their recidivism rates are almost non-existent, which means that those people are not ending up back in prison. So when do we take a step back and say, hey, let's help people? And that for me is just like, hey, just give them. And at this point, just give them clean drinking water. Make sure they have air conditioning in the dead heat of summer where it's 110 degrees. Make sure that they have proper health care. That's the thing that is lacking in our prison system, which is insane. Just at my dad's facility alone, multiple men have been prescribed the wrong medication and therefore... They've ended up in the hospital for bleeding out. They 
won't even give them medicine for a cold. Like they're suffering from COVID, but none of them want to go get tested because they know they'll just be thrown in a room with very minimal food and water. So that's that's what's so alarming to me. What's supposed to be the greatest nation on earth? We can't even provide proper health care or clean drinking water. Like it's the bare minimum that I'm asking for. What's your message to people about fame? I think like our, in our society, a lot of people, they want to build a following on social media. They want to become an influencer. They want to, you know, achieve success. And then other people are just trying to understand it all. They're trying to understand why somebody would want to be famous, why somebody would go on reality TV or want to develop a business online. You've, you've seen all sides of it. What's your message? I think in today's day and age, fame is what everyone wants because it seems like it's this easy life of money and attention. When in reality, I would I want to be famous for something that is more intentional, that actually speaks to people and helps people and leaves lasting change. So when people look at fame, you have to think, all right, what do I want to be famous for? Because I guarantee you, I would be a heck of a lot more famous right now if I would have taken the OnlyFans route and been half naked on Instagram and, you know, sold my pictures of my body for God only knows how much. Like, I would probably be on a yacht in the middle of the Mediterranean right now, okay? But I've chosen to live a life that has more meaning. And at the end of the day, when you look back on your life and you say, like, I would rather be living in an apartment right now and say, but you know what? I changed X amount of people's lives or I helped so many people and I loved people well. And I I would rather that type of fame. And so at the end of the day, fame's not all it's cracked up to be. And you're, you're famous in your own right. If you have, I believe if you have loved people and loved people well, that's enough fame for anyone. If, if both your parents get released tomorrow, do you, do you would you still see yourself fighting for criminal justice reform? Oh, without a doubt. At that point it would just be a family, it would be a family initiative because I guarantee you there's things that my parents have gone through and that they've witnessed that they have not told me because they don't want me to worry. So they're going to be coming from the perspective of to individuals who were incarcerated, who had to deal with these things. And I'm coming from the perspective of a daughter who wanted to fight and give everything she had for her parents to come home. So we would all be speaking from so many different perspectives. And I like to say, my dad would always say, like, when you know better, you do better. And that's how I feel about this whole situation was I didn't know any better. Like, I had no idea about our criminal justice system. I had no idea about prisons. But now I know better. So now that I know better, I have to do better by implementing change. Last question I have for you is your mom, I think, is in Kentucky. Your dad's in Florida, right? Yep. How do, how do, how, how do they communicate with each other? Have they, have they been able to maintain a consistent relationship? That's another thing. When you look at our prison system and they like to say, oh, we pride ourselves on trying to keep families together. We don't do that at all because my parents, they have not gotten to speak to each other on the phone. It has been a year and they have been together for 30 years and they have not gotten to speak to each other. 
and they get to email back and forth, but emails are delayed. You never know if they're going to get them. You just don't know. And they can't send mail via, you know, postal service because part of the retaliation has been correctional officers stealing their mail. So wait a second. They, they can, how do they email people when they, how do they email people in jail? It's just a, it's an app that they get and they have to add people to like their um, contact list and then I have to accept it. So they can, it's like their form of email, but they get to email back and forth. But other than that, they haven't heard each other's voice in a year. They haven't, you know, and that's, that's the really tough part. But throughout it all, it's every call I have with my mom is please tell your dad how much I love him. And every call with dad is, please tell your mom how much I love her. Like, there is not a single call that one that they don't say that. But the last thing I promise is, given that you've, you're now raising both of your siblings and parenting them, how has that changed or has it changed your view on whether or not you want to be a parent of your own kids? I always used to say, I will have however many kids God will allow, like, that was my viewpoint. It's like, I don't know. I think when you're young, you think like, oh, kids are like easy, right? No. Uh, <laughs> after having Chloe and Grayson, I mean, if anything, obviously it slowed my timeline down on things. But I, I've i always said God meant for me to be a mom. Like if I don't do anything right in my life, that's going to be the one thing I do right. But it's definitely opened my eyes to how important bringing a child into this world is and how when we're gone, what we leave behind are children. So how we raise them and how we love them and teach them and guide them, like it matters. And I think if anything, it's just made me realize that when that time does come for me to have kids, like it, every little decision matters and impacts your child. Well, Savannah, I think this is a good place for us to end our conversation. Thank you so much for coming on, for being so vulnerable, honest, and sharing what you shared. If people want to follow along your journey more, they want to connect with you, if they want to listen to your podcast, where's the best place to do so? Yeah, so Instagram, just Savannah Chrisley. And then my podcast is called Unlocked with Savannah. So you can find that on YouTube, any podcast app. And it just follows this whole journey, it has my friends, family, other fun people on. It's just a good place to go to have that authenticity that is not seen elsewhere. Awesome. Well, I invite people to check that stuff out. And thank you once again for coming on the show. I think this is going to provide the audience a lot of value. Thank you so much.